0: boom that was awesome i loved that welcome back guys thank you for sticking with us through that commercial break i'm really excited to announce friend of the show we've had him on once before he's the author of layered money and an adjunct professor over at usc nick batia nick thank you so much for joining us today
1: q great to see you man great to be back and those drums had me that was i was awesome. dancing I that. right yeah i love that
0: this is one that I'm really excited about. Nick, you have been on a tear with the Bitcoin Layer newsletter that you guys have been putting out. Um, there's a, a lot going on in the world. You guys have been uh, you know, keeping everyone up to date on both what's happened, the effects it's happening, it's happening on day-to-day life right now, and what your expectations are going forward. We can start at a lot of places. I would like to start first off with the Fed. You actually were the one to tip me off to this. But the Atlanta Fed, and Chris, if you could pull up that chart from the Atlanta Fed from yesterday, uh, they announced that their GDP forecast for Q2 is now forecasted to be zero. So not necessarily negative, which a negative reading for Q2 would put us into a recession. But talk to us about the significance of this forecast coming in at zero right now, ahead of, we're now nine days out from the quarter ending.
1: Sure. Well, the difference between slightly positive zero and slightly negative is is not important here. Uh, what's important is that GDP is slowing down materially in the United States, and we are bordering on a technical recession, which is also not that important. Technical recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth which if this print ends up being negative for Q2, that would put us in technical recession. What's more important than any of that stuff is the end of the business cycle and going into a contractionary environment in which credit is tightening, borrowing decreases, spending decreases, employment decreases, and asset prices respond accordingly. And so what we've seen over the last quarter to two quarters is a significant drawdown in risk assets. That has been pricing in a recession. Uh, Now the economic data is finally starting to tell us that recession is here, just about, technically, or definitely here. Again, that doesn't really matter. But uh, what does matter is that the signal that we're taking that we are at the end of the cycle and mind you at the Bitcoin layer, we've been writing about yield curve inversion since October of last year and how yield curve inversions are a leading indicator of recession. And it's actually going to be the subject of my second YouTube video, which is going to be out on Thursday. Um, Yield curve inversions are a sign that recession is coming at some point in the future. Because the Fed is hiking rates to slow down the economic cycle or to send it into uh, its grave, basically, because inflation is going up. And uh, we've seen that from the yield curve over, you know, half a year. And here we are now at a a technical recession.
2: And I just want to sort of clarify for the audience. And I say this as someone who uh, knows or I would say you have forgotten more than I know about uh, all of this stuff. So, but my understanding when we talk about yield curve inversion, and please correct me where I'm wrong, is that, you know, if someone came to me and was like, hey, can I borrow a hundred bucks? I would probably want to know like, oh, that that hundred dollars is valuable to me as cash. So sure, but there's going to be like a premium on that. I'm going to need like some kind of interest on that. So if, you know, normally if, if I asked you like, well, how long do you want to borrow it for? And you said 10 years i'd be like all right let's say and i'm making pulling this out of my ass but like let's say I'm, i want i want a 10 percent interest on that over the period of 10 years so i want to make an additional 10 percent normally we would expect that if i asked you that same question and you said one year that i would give you a lower interest rate i'd say well since it's since that 100 dollars is only going to be locked up for one year versus 10 years instead of 10 percent, i only need one percent interest and if i understand correctly yield curve inversion is where we actually see the inverse. So people want to make loans where they are getting uh, the, the the shorter expiration loans are actually higher value. We see higher interest rates on those one year or in this case, I think the common one is a 10-year over the three-year, right?
1: 10-year and two-year is the one that uh, is commonly cited. Yes. And so you have that correct. That's what... You, uh, A positively sloped yield curve is the natural shape, uh, which is what you were describing in the first part of the example, and an inverted yield curve would be, uh, you know, the opposite of that. Now, what you're describing is a consumer lending type of environment or even a a corporate lending type of environment. But this, this yield curve inversion that we're talking about is in the US Treasury market And it's also in other parts of the interest rate derivatives market um, that is largely based off of the U S treasury market and the plumbing of the financial system and an inversion there, it's quite different than if we had a consumer driven, a consumer facing yield cover inversion, or even a, or even a yield conversion, uh, sorry, a yield curve inversion. That would benefit the consumer, someone that borrows at two years and has to pay ten percent versus someone that only has to pay two percent if they borrowed for ten years, would be highly advantageous to a consumer. But that's not really what we're talking about here. You're, so you have the example right, but the 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 target market is not you know, the same thing. And so in the treasury market, the behavior of investors that buy and sell to your treasuries has its own entire fundamental dynamic that has to do with the entire world economy, the world's financial system, central banking, asset management, forex management, uh, cash management, all these enormous fields that impact two-year treasury yields. And then in the 10-year part of the curve as well, we have this entirely, I mean, honestly, an enormous universe of actors that play in that market to buy and sell 10-year US treasuries. And some of it being the same as the twos, but some of it being different in that the 10-year part of the US treasury curve is considered the risk-off asset for basically all of asset management. And we can call that probably somewhere between $1 and $300 trillion of size of market for the 10-year part of the curve. So when we look at the difference between two-year U.S. Treasury yields and 10-year U.S. Treasury yields, we're talking about two parts of the monetary system and financial system that um really have their own dynamics. And so to to tie it all in when 2s10s is inverted, which right now it's essentially flat, it's essentially zero, it's inverted a little bit over the last few months here and there, but we're at we're at a flat level. What the market is saying is that we expect the Fed to be raising rates very quickly, but the overall growth and inflation level of the U.S. economy over a 10-year time horizon is unchanged relative to that increase in short-term interest rates. It's not making it so that we, the investors believe that all of this hiking and raising of interest rates is going to turn into long-term inflation or that long-term inflation is actually something that the market believes. It actually doesn't believe that, and that's expressed with a flat yield curve. The market does not believe that we're headed to five to eight percent inflation. Otherwise, 10-year yields will be would be at five to eight percent. They're not, they're still at three and a quarter percent just where two-year yields are, and two-year yields are at three and a quarter percent because that's where the market believes the Fed is eventually going to hike rates towards. Uh, right now, we're at one and three quarters percent.
0: What in your experience of you know watching the Fed play with these rate hikes, especially in the post-2007-2008 uh, financial crisis time period, it seems as though the market either knows or almost tells the Fed what to be doing, even the most recent rate hike of 75 basis point, the market shifted its tune by monday after the inflation reading it got on friday and the expectation was settled that hey we're going to get 75 point uh 75 basis point hike but in the days of volcker when he's going up 250 basis points this was this was not pre-forecast by the market this was not understood ahead of time what effect does do you are you seeing that have on just the general markets
1: So we have a saying at the Bitcoin layer, it's that the Fed is a slave to the rates market. The rates market moves first and prices in what the Fed is going to do so that when the Fed acts, it's not disrupting the market. It's not making people lose money overnight. They have uh, at with the most recent rate hike, it was fascinating to watch the Fed only gave the market. Uh, a day and a half to digest the news that it was going to hike 75 basis points. It leaked a story through, it leaked the hike through the wall street journal that it wasn't going to go 50. It was going to go 75. The market adjusted really quickly just in time for the Wednesday meeting. But generally the fed doesn't want to upset the market. It wants to tell the market in advance what it's going to do, get the market there. And then, and then when it acts, it doesn't disrupt the market so we historically have seen that we can trust that the fed will do what it's going to say it's going to do with some sort of a three to six month time horizon but it can change really quickly you know the fed can say something it's going to do something three months later and you know basically four months later everything has gone to shit, and the fed has to pivot that can happen it can happen quickly, but it doesn't usually happen within three months. So that's what the Fed is trying to do. They're always trying to lead the market. The rates market gets there. But then at some point, we will see the two-year yield come crashing back down. And that's the market telling the Fed it has to stop hiking rates. And the twos will come crashing down toward where the Fed funds currently is at that point. Or below it and then eventually the fed within days or weeks will have to say we're pausing our hiking cycle and it'll be basically responding to what the market is telling them
0: nick i always love when you really break these things down because i don't think many of us really understand the nuances of how market participants really think and view these yield curves um you know we hear stagflation get thrown around a lot you brought up and highlighted in one of the most recent issues of the Bitcoin layer that unemployment is reaching these historic low levels. Uh, And it almost implies there's there's this nice little, I'm going to steal yours and Joe's words here, a nice little hole to thread the needle through where you can let uh, let unemployment go up for a little bit, but not too much. I'm going to just ask a very direct question here. How confident are you in the Fed's ability to actually maneuver this Or, and if they're not able to properly maneuver this, what are your expectations?
1: Yeah, so the Fed, you know, what we said, and I just wanna, you know, pause for a second to acknowledge that at the Bitcoin layer, we've gone from one to three people. And the explosion just in energy and amount of content that we've been able to put out, and, you know, we launched the YouTube channel today. There's so much to there's so much more to come, and I'm so thankful that I'm not just by myself anymore. So, a uh, special shout out to Joe Consorti and Matthew Ball. Joe is helping with research and growth at the Bitcoin Layer, and Matt is helping us with our with our design, our content strategy, our videos, so uh, and our graphics. So, we're, I'm very thankful to have now a team of three. Uh, previously, you know, it's just me and my wife. I'm writing and she's helping me look at things and uh give me feedback and now we are you know we're going into a proper business mode here at the Bitco- at the Bitcoin layer so I hope everyone subscribes to Substack the YouTube and joins us for the ride there's plenty of free educational you know and research and analytical content that we're providing so with that being said back to your question about unemployment there's only there's only one thing here it's the cycle and so the cycle drives all and at the end of a cycle, when you're going to recession right before you have inflation, that's heating up. And this is generally speaking, and that's not even to mention the, the especially inflationary episode that we're having right now with inflation at 40 years high, but generally in the cycle inflation is at its highs at the end of the cycle. The Fed is tightening monetary policy in response to that. And the reason that they're tightening is so they can bring inflation down. How do they bring inflation down? They slow the economy. What happens in a slowing economy? Unemployment goes up. So they say they want to thread the needle, but it's irrelevant. What they're doing is going to drive the recessionary or contractionary environment. Say we don't even get a recession. We could just get this uh, growth shock where growth stops at zero and um, even then we'll have a spike in unemployment, whether it's a little bit or a lot, the unemployment goes up. So they can say they want to thread the needle or they only want to bump unemployment from 3.6 to 4%, but we should never take the Fed's economic projections at at their face value. They're terrible at projecting 1 to 2 years out. The only thing they're good at is saying what they're going to do over the next 3 to 6 months from a monetary policy perspective because that's that's their only job is to come to a meeting every 6 to 8 weeks and say raise rates, lower rates, QE, QT, whatever. That's all that they are good at. That's and they're not even, you know, Good isn't its own word. We won't get down that path, but that's all that they do. They conduct monetary policy. They're terrible at economic projections. They completely missed inflation. They, and we just can't trust whatever they're saying. So the only thing that people need to understand is that the cycle is what matters. We're at the end of the cycle. And at the end of the cycle, fed tightens, inflation and growth go down and employment goes up. So right now, that's why the market does believe we're at peak inflation, even though we could get inflation to 9% and we could even get it to 10% and it could last for another 6 to 12 months. I don't necessarily believe that's the path. I think that we're it'll slow a little bit quicker than that. But the point is that it'll roll over because the Fed has tightened already. The market has tightened for them. We know this because 30-year mortgages rates are at 6% now. That's not because the Fed funds rate is at 6%. Fed funds rate has gone from a quarter to one and three quarters. But mortgage rates have gone from three to six. That is a real tightening. So forget that Fed doesn't matter anymore. The market has tightened. The real estate market will slow. That will have an effect on the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy will slow unemployment will increase. That's what I'm trying to deliver to our subscribers and to our viewers is a simple way to understand where is the economy? What is going to happen? Stop listening to the Fed's projections. Look at the market. Look at some economic indicators that are reliable that tell us where we are in the cycle and understand what the cycle does to investment returns.
0: Nick, you brought up housing, and I, I do want to touch on in the part one of your recession, uh, Bitcoin's first major recession blog posts, there is a chart of the 30-year fixed mortgage rate, and something that you guys highlight, which I found very, very troubling for myself uh, as someone who is trying to look to buy a house, is these mortgage rates are now above levels during the 2008, 2009 window when you know shit really hit the fan. Looking at this with what the Fed has been saying, let's talk first housing now for a little bit. Um, Expectations for the housing market. This seems to be the one marketplace that hasn't seen the drawdowns that the public equity markets or even the broader cryptocurrency markets or more specifically Bitcoin have seen over the last few months.
1: Yes, this is a very important chart. It directly affects affordability. It's the direct consequence of the Fed. Indicating it's in a tightening cycle, right? So the market responds before the rates market responds before the Fed does, but the rates market forces the Fed's hand because the market is conducting monetary policy really for the Fed. And so what happens here is that we see inflation skyrocket. The market understands the Fed will have to tighten. Short term rates and long term rates go up. And then mortgage rates go up because they're linked to these treasury yields and other interest rates in the market that are pricing in an increasing Fed funds rate over the coming 24 months. And that's what happens. Everything becomes more expensive. And the main feature of that is the borrowing cost. So the borrowing cost is skyrocketing. That's what the chart is telling you. And if the borrowing cost skyrockets, people cannot afford to do the same things that they were doing. So I'm not trying to make nitty-gritty housing projections that the you know real estate prices will come down across the nation or that we'll have a, a collapse in new home sales or permits or anything like that. Again, what matters is the cycle. We, we are going to slow. Housing is going to slow because of all of this stuff. When housing slows, we have a wealth effect. The wealth effect is this idea that when the stock market and the real estate market increase in value, Americans feel wealthier because they can use the increased uh, home price to take out equity. They, can, uh, they feel wealthier because their 401k is higher and they believe that their uh, retirement can come sooner because of that uh, retirement income that they have and they spend more. That's the wealth effect. So the opposite is true. When your home price comes down, And your stock market portfolio comes down in price you spend less the consumer is 70 plus percent of the u.s economy economy slows Uh, companies look at that slowing economy and they say we're not going to hire at the same pace or we're going to lay people off we have already seen that in the headlines where we say we see layoffs so it's all cycle driven and it's it's all actually predictable At the margin, what's going to happen to each one of these components when you know where we are in the cycle. And right now we're at end cycle.
0: This may be a a conversation, uh, a deeper conversation, more philosophical, but I'm paying a lot of attention to private equity firms that have started to enter not just the housing market because they've always been... In some way affiliated with the housing market, but now going out buying owning and essentially being landlords on single-family homes Um, To me this feels and reads like a very dangerous practice that inevitably just leads to Corporations owning all of the land Uh, they seem to have an endless supply of money that in my opinion has been one of the root causes of An increased valuation of homes because not only are individuals bidding against other individuals but now you're also bidding against BlackRock Uh, and other than the US government I don't think anyone else has more money than BlackRock do you think these private equity firms that have entered the single-family housing market could almost artificially keep the housing market at these levels for an extended period of time or is that just are they going to feel the effects of a rising interest rate no different than individuals would?
1: It's a it's a fair thesis that we have a segment of the demand today that we didn't always have. Um, so I would say it's a fair thesis to think that there would be marginal support during this cycle downturn that we wouldn't have elsewhere. Um, but in the end, Price and the yield on the asset is going to be what matters most to a BlackRock, and so if they look at the price and they look at the rental yield, and the number doesn't make sense, they will offload the asset in in search of better yield elsewhere or other better risk-adjusted returns. So, um, you know that that would be the way that I would think about BlackRock in the market.
0: I could accept that,
1: and I and I didn't really answer your question about the interest rate component of it. But the interest rate component will lead the price to adjust, and it'll also lead the relative value of the rental income yield to other assets. So the interest rate uh, filters down into the two other metrics that BlackRock is going to look at, which is the price and the yield on the asset, and they'll compare it to interest rates elsewhere. And um, so the market will, will will shake out where it shakes out, and we'll see if private equity is a lasting force in the market, or if uh, consumers are better able to withstand the interest costs associated with uh, this most recent tightening.
0: As much as I'd love to see the downturn, and, and many of us would, of a company like blackrock i think all of us are more concerned with our own individual well-beings um i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going down down these charts and i lost p so it it's just you and me nick and i get to have a very fun very okay consumer credit this is the one that i am genuinely concerned about and this feels like this is our version of the 2008 bubble um Walk us through first, like what does consumer credit even measure, and then what are you seeing in these charts?
1: Yes, so when we think about the consumer and we think about sentiment, um, that is also another indicator of where we are in the cycle and where spending is going to be. Because remember that the consumer is about three quarter percent, uh, you know, three quarters of our economy. And so if spending goes down, then the whole economy slows. So when consumer credit is being exhausted and we see a spike in borrowing toward the end of a cycle, what it's telling us is that the consumer doesn't have cash. They need to borrow and they're using all of their borrowing capacity right now at the whatever rate that they can get because they're fearing that they won't get that next extension of credit. And that's, that's usually preceding default waves. So again, another cyclical component to the economy is that at the end of a cycle or sorry, going into a recession or the mark of the end of a cycle is default start to happen because people don't get the next gig, they are getting laid off and they're not able to roll the debt. Also, interest rates are increasing so they're not able to afford the higher reset of uh, borrow or the latest interest rate or the next credit card offer comes in at a rate that's much higher than what they could afford and they were rolling over on three previous credit cards uh, as rates ratcheted up. And the consumer basically ran out of gas. So it's another way to think about cyclicality. And we can look you know, back at 07 and see a similar pattern.
0: As you mentioned, we're seeing almost this repeated cycle or pattern. Um, is there a specific area of spending that you are seeing is heightened? Or maybe it's just the general inflation woes impacting this consumer credit bubble as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we also have to keep in mind that PMIs and survey data in the United States are still materially above 50, which means we are still in expansion. Um, that's why I say technical recession because we are headed for this technical recession, but really things are still buzzing. Corporate profitability is, is modestly there. It's not, it's not screaming recession necessarily. And so we have some recession indicators, but other parts of the economy saying that the economy is still hanging on. And, you know, with that, I think it's, there's an important dynamic there that we, we can watch. I don't like to watch too many sub indices or a thousand different, uh, economic indicators. I choose five or six of them. Uh, we are going to do a video about it. Um, on the Bitcoin Layers YouTube channel probably by next week uh, to show, you know, we just have to look at ISM data, PMI data, consumer sentiment from University of Michigan, small business optimism, only a few things to tell us where we are in the cycle. And then predicting the magnitude of the cycle each way and predicting the moves in markets each way. I think it's beyond what, I want to try to do for the reader and viewer because I don't think there's a ton of value in saying that we're heading to a deep recession or a shallow recession I don't think that matters what matters to me is explaining the cycle uh, explaining that risk markets will sell off 6 to 12 to 18 months before a recession and that you'll see the best returns basically Once the recession has been, you know, at the, (laughs) on the headlines of every newspaper around the country that we're in recession. So those, those types of, um, takeaways, that's what I'm, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I'm trying to build with the Bitcoin layer. I want it to be unique and not just something where we're making calls every day and we're not a hedge fund. We're not a trading service. We're a research and educational platform. So I want to always balance what I'm saying without making these numerical predictions, but rather guide the readers and the viewers through understanding the economic cycle and what that does to the rest of the investment world and it, how it impacts Bitcoin, really.
0: Has there been an example historically where some of these economic indicators are suggesting we're in a technical recession while the broader economy seems to flourish?
1: Maybe not flourish, but there's, there's the correlation is close to one, but the magnitude and the level in terms of expansion or contraction is, is not always on point. So the direction is kind of always right, but not necessarily the level. And so, yes, you'll see examples in the past of, uh, you know, GDP being slightly negative, but other economic indicators are slightly positive, but what we're not able to avoid is this direction.
0: P I don't know if, uh, if you were just going and making doomsday preparations or not, uh, I now get to ask my favorite question that I have, frankly, held back on asking for so long. (laughs) Hit us with it. Correlation. Oh, shit. Uh, So, you guys highlighted in part two of the major recession, Chris, this would be the NASDAQ 100 chart with the orange uh, Fed. I want the orange Fed rate below. Uh, I want to start there because we're seeing, and you guys really highlighted an excellent point here where... It seems as though the growth we saw in the stock market almost perfectly coincides with the fact that we had a Fed fund rate of practically zero. And now as we slowly see this incremental no, not this one. Uh just a blue and orange line. Sorry, here. The um, orange
1: line will be the one with the step function upward. That's yeah. The-
0: I'd love for you to just sort of break this down a little bit and talk to us. Yeah, that's the one of what, when you look at this, what you see, because when I look at this, I see, oh, we were purely in a bull market because we kept the rates at zero. And as we're increasing it, we've jolted the market and we're starting to see the effects of what a real economy, unfortunately, would look like in the stock market.
1: Q, can we set the record for the number of times that one person says the word cycle in a Bitcoin podcast, in under ninety minutes, can we say? Can we go for the record?
0: Uh, I believe the record was ninety-eight times, so okay. we are at, I believe, sixteen. So we okay. have a little bit, of, a little bit to go. But I'll throw cycle, cycle, cycle.
1: Okay, so that's three more, and I'll give you a few more here. This picture is a perfect example of what a short cycle looks like in incompletion. Okay, so start at the left of the chart. What we have is the end of an economic cycle that was right before covid then you had a covid crash and you had the fed funds rate come basically all the way down to zero as what happens is the fed has to cut when you're going into a recession and that's also you know to bring it back to where we are in the cycle the fed is still in the hiking portion of the cycle not even close to the cutting portion of the cycle which probably let's say comes next year okay so what you have at the beginning here is the fed cutting and when rates go down to zero that's the end of the recession okay from if you wanted to date it it would be the day that rates got down to zero The stock market bottoms on that day and then has a massive run-up for the next year and a half, two years, uh, as rates are at zero. But then what do you see? At the end of 2021, inflation is starting to rage and the Fed basically has to admit that we're going to start hiking rates. They didn't do it till March, but look what already happened. The second they acknowledged we have to hike rates, risk markets sold off as you are turning in the cycle. So the, the economic cycle is going to turn 6 to 12 months after the stock market peaks. 6, 12, 18 months, doesn't matter. That is the, That peak that we saw of late last year, that's the signal that the cycle is over. We only know looking back. That's why, again, I'm not a trading service here. We're, we have to look back and, and analyze What does that mean? It means that the peak that we saw end of 21 was the six to 12 month indicator that we're at end cycle. Does the end cycle mean uh, a quick growth shock, a brief contraction, or a deep recession? No idea. We won't know until more data comes out, until we see how deep the stock market goes. NASDAQ is down 33%. If it goes down 60%, deep recession. If... The bottom was, you know, last week at 33%, maybe just a shallow contraction. Again, it's about identifying the cycle. And then, so right now we are, when the orange line's going back up, the Fed is saying, we're going to stop the cycle too. We're here to stop the cycle also. Even though rates markets are, and, and equity markets, and the Bitcoin market, interestingly enough, is doing all the work for them as portfolios go down. You think the wealth effect applies to Bitcoiners? Hell yeah, it does. We eating steak tonight boys memes when we are at 70K is the same thing as we're going to McDonald's today because we're down 50, you know, 60. it's the same thing. It's the wealth effect of Bitcoiners. It's a fraction of the, I'm not saying that actually impacts top-line GDP growth in a material way, but it's the same behavioral effect that we get. The risk market sold off. Economy will slow off of the back of wealth effect going back six months. Then interest rates go up. Housing slows. The Fed is hiking into all of this as it admits it's behind the curve, and we know that they're a slave to rates market, so they're (laughs) they're irrelevant from some of that signaling perspective the rates market leads by many months but tightening is here so what you're looking at there is a short cycle it's a short cycle because of the pandemic and the response and the fiscal response and monetary response all of that goes away and what you know what we didn't put up was the fed's balance sheet we've talked about QE and QT in a previous piece that was a highly educational piece to explain QE1 through QE4, and then QT1 and QT2. We're in QT2 right now. Uh, all of that is also cyclical and part of the uh, Fed's monetary policy and part of what drives investment returns.
0: I almost want... I'm going to hold off on the actual correlation conversation for a little bit longer um, because you know all of this is essentially applying... A, implying that the next cycle is in fact a recession that we're due for this correction and it is a necessary and healthy part of a growing economy you don't just go straight up so it it is inevitable that we would have this um whether it is exaggerated because of what we've done over the last two years we will unfortunately have to bear witness to ourselves but some something that you guys have really emphasized at the bitcoin layer is This is Bitcoin's first real attempt at going through a recession. Um, I want to first just maybe touch on or set expectations for both P, Nick, and even myself of what expectations are for Bitcoin as it enters this period of a general market recession, not a Bitcoin recession, but a general market recession, and what Bitcoin can look like on the other side of this
1: i believe and this is you know we're going to be writing about this for tomorrow's issue i basically believe that the recession that we see ha- starting now has been priced in by bitcoin over the last 12 months and that the drawdown that we saw was the market pricing in uh, recession so stocks go down 33%, Bitcoin goes down 70 plus percent, and um, and that's it. And so that would mean that we're heading into a modest contraction or recession that has started already. That will be over maybe by the end of this year. Asset prices start to head back up. The chart on stocks looks much worse than the chart on Bitcoin, which has returned to a lot of fundamental and longer term valuation metrics and kind of returned back to scratch, um, where stocks are still a little bit above that level. Another thing that we have to be watching now and we are watching is the Ethereum to Bitcoin cross and what behavioral implications that has on the cycle, because we would expect that That ratio would come down as we're going into contractionary period as risk goes off, but that it would resume going back up in a risk on period. So I think that there's behavioral implications, implications from the Bitcoin price, the stock market, the Ethereum Bitcoin cross, and of course, rates. You guys know I do price study every day. And so that is what I'm watching. I'm watching the suite of prices to tell us, have we bottomed or have we not? and um what i said about bitcoin pricing in the recession that's becoming my base case is that the recession is here and bitcoin already priced it in and we had all the flush that we needed to have um we'll see you know we'll 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 do the research we'll do the price study well if bitcoin goes back down to fifteen thousand from here We're actually talking about probably looking at a very deep recession because the liquidity profile and global macro is showing it. That's what Bitcoin represents now. Bitcoin is actually a big daddy, like in the global macro scene in terms of how well it's forecasted this current recession. Big ups to Bitcoin for showing the market the direction. And I I mean it tongue in cheek, but it's actually it's an important takeaway. Bitcoin is fully part of the global macro play because of the way it's responded to this recession. We, we have to look at the correlation with equities and understand that Bitcoin was also pricing in recession right next to stocks. Who's in the driver's seat? Doesn't matter. They're sitting next to each other. Risk A and risk B, doesn't matter. Uh, beta is high in, in Bitcoin versus the stock market. They are both forecasting... The economic slowdown or the recession. So what is Bitcoin's role? It's actually to tell us when uh how deep the recession is going to be, when we've bottomed, to lead by three to six to nine months in terms of when the economy bottoms. And um and then I know you want to talk about kind of our discovery around the stock market and uh Bitcoin's correlation with each other, but Let's, you know, save that for the next question. The the point, the takeaway here is that if Bitcoin's price bottoms here, we're we're going into maybe a short recession and we'll be out of it. But if it goes much lower, it's probably signaling a much deeper recession, um, a deep, deep, deep recession, which I and I don't, clear, I'm not forecasting, but that's, uh, I don't, that's, it's not my base case.
2: And to be clear, when you say that it's forecasting a deep, deep recession, you're saying forecasting a deep deep recession in the broader macro or in the broader market.
1: Yes, uh, If Bitcoin went to $10,000 from here, to me that means that the stock market would be going down 50 to 60 percent from its peak at the end of 21, and that a 50 to 60 percent decline in the stock market usually corresponds or would lead a deep economic recession in the broad US economy by several months or by a year would lead that and we would see that. And because of the strong relationship of Bitcoin to stocks and because of price being, you know an indicator of so of so much truth, if we were to see that decline in Bitcoin, it would actually be a leading indicator of a deep broad U.S re- recession. You know, much to the surprise of all of us, really, that Bitcoin would be able to give us this true market signal completely separate from the risk-off narrative that we hope for Bitcoin to be. Completely yeah. separate. Yeah, I
2: think that's In, really it's interesting. the
1: complete opposite. It's it's the full risk indicator, but leading, leading every other asset class. It's mind-blowing, but it actually is probably... What is unfolding on it before our eyes, we won't be able to confirm it for another six to 12 months from now. I hate sounding like an economist. I'm far from one. I'm a trader.
2: <laughs> I'm, I have terrible I'm, news for you.
1: I'm a trader and a price student. And so I will let that markets tell me if I'm right or wrong, not any economic indicators or anything like that. But we do have to do price study ex post and we have to look back and see where our thesis right about, you know, Bitcoin being a signal.
0: I actually love this thesis. I've been very vocal that I've actually been using Bitcoin as my leading indicator for the NASDAQ and been trading QQQ puts based on Bitcoin's price movement. Um, So I do love, I think, the thesis. I'm a little maybe lost on how you're drawing that conclusion, though. For myself, I've... Assu- these are assumptions that i'm just gathering from what i'm seeing i'm viewing what the price movement of bitcoin uh directly related to private money hedge fund managers and and so on who do not need to publicly disclose that they're buying or selling bitcoin most don't have to do that and they have their own beta calculation for bitcoin and have in turn moved portfolio allocation accordingly um you know we're seeing a, a rise up in the bitcoin price and in my head, I'm seeing, oh, we are nine days away from the end of the quarter. Bitcoin's price is going up. If I think that this is just being treated like a risk on asset by fund managers, they probably have an allocation percentage that they're supposed to have for some of their clients. And they're just trying to get to that allocation amount by end of quarter. And then the dump will continue. Um I'm curious if that is in any way incorporated or you're thinking in a similar fashion that there is some private money being put into the Bitcoin market ecosystem. And that's part of the reason why you're seeing it trade almost in tandem. Uh, Chris, if you could pull up that chart where you guys highlight since about November, since January 1st, there's been a 90% positive correlation uh, since sorry, January 1st, 2017 between Bitcoin and the general markets.
1: Yes, so I don't. I don't really look at calendar effects. I think that um, it's a little too short term for what I'm trying to look at. So I don't really look at calendar effects. What I'm looking at with this correlation is part of what you're saying is that now a lot of these hedge funds have their allocation, and it is a beta play for them, and so they have to they treat Bitcoin and stocks in the same risk sleeve and then have their beta weightings to allocate to each so you know quarterly effects where you know stocks go up with with uh, Bitcoin at the end of a quarter as they're allocating or that kind of thing that could be a uh, that could be a result of this idea that Bitcoin is again it's on this hedge fund stage and has been um, you know, very obvious for the last several years due to this, you know, uh, 90% correlation that we have and the big takeaway that we are making at the Bitcoin layer and, and understanding the correlation and how we should think about it is that Bitcoin is a risk asset for the money players that are affecting the market. We see that due to correlation. So when they're making those moves, they're making them as in tandem with stocks and Bitcoin. But if we look at when uh, you know Bitcoin does its parabolic thing and uh, you know doubles, triples in a quarter in this rapid fashion, the correlation to stocks breaks down because something separate is happening in the market during that time. So. It, what, would, what would the takeaway for that be for investors? It would be that Bitcoin is going to be subject to the cycle and global macro risk 90% of the time, but for 10%, it will act on its own fundamentals. And historically, that has been when Bitcoin has gone up in a parabolic fashion, not when it has gone down. When it goes down, the correlation goes to one, 100%. And so Bitcoin exhibits a ton of cyclicality along with other risk assets, except for when it doesn't, which is a very short amount of time. And during that short amount of time, dramatic things happen that we have to point out and explain in order to explain Bitcoin's 100% compound annual growth rate. That it's shown since its birth, so it's a really, it's it's a it's actually a common sense discovery that we made to try to explain how Bitcoin can be can go from one cent to fifty thousand dollars, but still be ninety percent correlated with socks. It's you have to tie you have there's a missing piece of the puzzle, and we believe that we 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 discovered that, uh, and not even this huge discovery, but more of a a common sense way to explain the divergence over the long-term time horizon, while also staring the reality straight in the face that Bitcoin and stocks are correlated, and Bitcoin is a risk asset. That's what the market tells us.
0: Let's dive into that explanation, because I think you guys did a very excellent job of explaining the cycles and showcasing that over the course of each of these Bitcoin bull cycles, the correlation has diminished slowly over time, implying that yes, Bitcoin is decoupling uh, and we're probably five or six, maybe even seven more cycles away from really feeling that. But can you break that down? And Chris, this is that last little grid with the three lines and then percentages on the other side
1: yeah so what we really need to explain this better and we'll work on this as a correlation matrix across asset classes and what you'll see is that stocks and copper for example can be correlated at at one during certain times and then no correlation during other times different correlation regimes we go through different correlation regimes across asset classes sometimes most times, equities and corporate credit spreads are moving in a correlated way where corporate spreads are widening and risk assets are declining. Um, We get that sort of situation almost every day. But for times, credit and equities perform differently. So over a long-term time horizon, we should look at asset. Uh, class correlations to give us a sense of really how independent these things are from each other. We would see that corporate spreads and equities are highly correlated and copper would be much less correlated. So right now, Bitcoin and stocks are highly correlated. How long will it take for them to go less correlated? I don't think we're going negatively correlated because for so much of the time, it's behaving like this risk asset. But Yes, it does have its own fundamentals, so it should decline over time. It is declining over time, marginally, and um, we'll have to we'll have to you know just continue to observe this ratio, um, and we'll also have to continue to observe like when Bitcoin does its next parabolic thing. What what have stocks done during that time? That'll be another empirical data point in proving out some of these theories. Keep in mind also, guys, that when we read, like I studied finance in school, I studied uh, portfolio construction, they look at 50 to 80 years of returns. The whole study is based off of that, like 80 years of data, right? And really at best 50 years of data when they're trying to see, how should we build a portfolio what's the good ba- what's the best balance between risk and reward you know people know it sometimes as a sharp ratio this is balancing you know expected return versus expected risk all of these theories are based off of 20 to 30 year old theories that are based off of 50 to 80 year old data so as it is it's not that much data that they've used to build all of this theory now we come into bitcoin and we have a minuscule amount of data points to build out theories on how bitcoin portfolio should be constructed or how a portfolio should be constructed alongside bitcoin bitcoin went from one cent to a thousand dollars in its first three years four years so there's there's so much noise in the young history of bitcoin that all we are trying to do is put some theories out, test them over time. Each halving cycle, we get more data points to prove or disprove the halving theory. Each time we have a recession, we get more or less, you know, more data points to prove or disprove the correlation theory. And so we're how many data points do we have in halvings? Three? How many data points in recessions? One and a half? It's, it's not much. So we just do our best. We're trying to cover this. We're trying to narrate the transition toward a more Bitcoin centric world and where Bitcoin is part of global macro. That's the mission of the Bitcoin layer.
0: You guys have been instrumental. You especially, Nick, have been instrumental in my Bitcoin education and genuinely the Bitcoin layer is one of my favorite newsletters that I receive. So if you are not already subscribed, you absolutely should go. It takes you no time. There's a free version. He has a paid tier on the Substack as well. But I personally am very excited for a lot of this content you guys have churning out. And I I want to just freely in the middle of this interview remind everyone: if you are not yet subscribed to a this channel, subscribe to this channel. But also be sure to subscribe to all things Bitcoin Layer. I do have a question, and I I will be completely honest. I'm messaging Joe because I'm I'm a little perplexed and. Kindly surprised that you were seeing this 90% correlation since 2017 based on brief periods of extremes low and negative correlation when Bitcoin is obviously pumping, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our interview. What, in your opinion, though, is the root cause of the decline of this correlation? And what can we be doing to help further enhance this decline at a faster rate?
1: What can we be doing is not much. The only thing that talks here is money. So, you know, trade it outside the hedge fund sphere to affect the Bitcoin price. You know, I can't, that's literally the only thing that we can do here. Money is the only thing that talks, right? I believe that the numbers that we have on the screen are weekly correlation numbers, and so those are, you know, weekly, that's a weekly look at the strength of the correlation. Why is it declining over time? Again, Bitcoin does have its own fundamentals. Bitcoin isn't a slave to the stock market. It is allocated in the same funds that have a lot of money that move the market. That doesn't mean that stocks are Bitcoin. In fact, stocks are not Bitcoin. And so there is a different set of supply and demand dynamics on Bitcoin that will make it trade independently of stocks for, it doesn't even matter if it's some of the time. The only thing that matters is that some of the time it does. So why are we seeing a declining correlation? I wouldn't make much over this, you know, decline. It's not a ton. What we know is that it's non one that's important that it is declining is a good statistical sign, right? But statistics don't tell the full story because what does a 0.8 correlation means? It just means that most of the time it's correlated and some, and a very small amount of the time it's not. 0.9 <laughs> means the same thing if you wanted to make it into a sentence. They mean the same thing as each other, right? 0.9 and 0.8. But at the my, minutia level, yes, it is declining. So. More of a story can be told if we get down to 0.7, 0.6, 0.5 over the coming years. Also, what we're focused on is whether or not during the next parabolic move or whatever period of time the correlation breaks down, why did it break down? What, what is the takeaway from the breakdown? How long did the breakdown last? What did Bitcoin do during that time? What did stocks do? And try to make some sort of conclusion uh, based off of
2: that as well. I was just going to ask, what is the ray of light in all this? You know, we've been talking about the um, this potential incoming recession and everything else we've touched on today. What, how do you? Wh- what is the positive aspect in this, or what do you what do you draw positive associations with? What should we draw positive associations or conclusions from? I like to keep it simple
1: and remind myself and people why I'm in Bitcoin. Why is it that I've chosen Bitcoin as the avenue to express my views and to do and conduct my research? Bitcoin is a better money for our present society and our current generation, the next generation. It's a better money than government money because of the risks inherent in central banks and governments. That's what I believe about Bitcoin. So just because Bitcoin is owned by hedge funds and shows a 90% correlation doesn't change the reason why I believe it's a more fair money. I actually love Bitcoin. And I use that word, you know, with all of its meaning. I love Bitcoin because I think it presents a societal change that excites me to the core in the same way that the Internet excited an entire generation because we could talk to each other without the government how amazing is the internet? And it's like, it's really, uh, it sounds stupid uh, to kind of pin it all on that, but how amazing is it that we can all talk to each other all the time online? We have YouTube, we have Twitter, we have the next decentralized iterations of these platforms. Doesn't matter. YouTube is the one with 2 billion people on it. And we're all on YouTube learning from each other, teaching each other communicating with each other, nobody in the middle. We have a YouTube sensor that sometimes gets involved. No comment. We have what we have. And it's a blessing and it's a freedom. And it started in the United States of America too. All these ideas. The freedom of speech. Every social network. American. And what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the same thing as the internet, but for money. It's finding its home in America because we believe in freedom and freedom of speech and freedom to express and freedom to transact. And we're setting an example for the rest of the world that this is an ideal. Bitcoin is an ideal that is in the light of American ambition and entrepreneurship and freedoms. The rest of the world looks at us. And says why are you guys obsessed with bitcoin it must be good there must be something there and then they find what they uh find from it like the rest of the world did they did the internet start there no it started california but and hal finney is a californian a proud and and i'm proud to be one and share the home state with hal finney
0: i'm here with you nick
1: <laughs> you know cali represent and so but the rest of the world is using the internet. It's helping them do amazing things. Where did it start? It started here. And Bitcoin has to be that effect for the world. The same way that the internet has changed the world, Bitcoin will do that. That's why I'm here. That's my takeaway. That, it, and so who cares about strong correlation to stocks? Talk to me about our society, our planet, our the next generation. I have a four-year-old daughter. What do you want from the world? I want Bitcoin to be an option for us. That's it. And I believe Bitcoin will have a lot of success, but I'm not I'm not super into the hyper Bitcoinization narrative. As long as it's here and it's growing and it's alive and it's embraced and the spirit of it is is acknowledged doesn't matter how many people we there are people that have it that use it that number the number will grow as well just like population has grown uh that uses the internet over time you you have to compare it to internet adoption or else you're missing you're missing everything
0: there was something circulating on social media twitter especially last week of the idea that oh the lightning network cannot scale and I want to piggyback off of what Nick's saying to really explain for everyone to fully, fully debunk the fud of, well, not everyone could run their own node and uh, uh, too hard. Um, There was a point where people were saying that about putting an internet connection in your own home, let alone a computer in your own home. And with the exception of my parents' home, which only last year decided let's actually get off of hardwiring cables and actually introduced Wi-Fi in the 21st century into this household. Um, this was the last house in Los Angeles that didn't have Wi-Fi. Everyone has a Wi-Fi modem in their own home. That was unimaginable when I was a kid. I remember the commercial that Best Buy had, actually, when laptops started to become at the forefront of computer innovation and the idea that you could have a wireless connection and there was a puppet that was walking around and the Best Buy clerk says, but this is all wireless. So like you don't need to like worry about all the plugs like getting in your way. And then the puppet being a puppet was fantasizing about not having all the wires on it. Anyways, I've digressed and lost the plot. But the point being, to Nick's point, the adoption of this may be difficult for many people to grasp. And it is as simple as, hey, there was a moment where a computer took the whole floor of a building. And now I have a computer right here in my pocket, let alone right in front of me. And what's recording this has the computer processing power akin to some of those early day computers. So I digress. I do want to ask you, Nick, on the topic of just regulatory expansion in the Bitcoin realm. We saw last month. Yeah, about a month ago, New York put forward some legislation that was pretty anti-Bitcoin mining in their state. Um, At the same time, states like texas and wyoming seem to be at the forefront of bringing in bitcoin miners where where do you i think what would you say to some of these fud spinners around bitcoin and its energy use we'll start there
1: the value proposition of bitcoin is that there's no counterparty it's a commodity and not issued by any central party That is the entire value proposition of Bitcoin. That's what the, that's what Satoshi discovered was how to do that. And so for that to be preserved, we have to have a bunch of miners on around the world to preserve that, uh, preserve that decentralization. So what's this what's the issuer of bitcoin all the all the miners that are on who owns the miners hopefully uh, a diversity diversified enough set of profit seekers and that's the mechanism that we have it, it doesn't really go beyond that what do you value the energy that you consume how do you value the energy you consume the world has valued bitcoin's energy with a price with a market value that's the value it's not anybody's job to tell other people how to consume the energy this is one of my biggest problems with the narrative out there the United States telling you uh, telling China and India stop burning coal you're basically saying stop turning the power on we'd rather you die than burn coal that's the same that's the same thing that you're telling Bitcoin miners Turn the power off because Bitcoin isn't worth the energy of the planet. And that's our choice to tell you to do that. So it's a preposterous proposal to say, turn the Bitcoin miners off, just as it would be to tell a country without any clean, clean energy infrastructure to tell them to turn the coal plant off. It's inhumane. It's not fair, it's not an equitable request from one segment of the population to the other. We all share the same planet. Let me decide how I wanna consume my energy in my own way, and I'm not talking about destroying the society by consuming energy. I'm taking a good out of that energy consumption, just as the person in India cooking from the energy from the coal power plant. Cooking, food. Heating water. So you can't pick and choose how other people are going to consume their energy, right? Especially with uh, those that fly private jets.
0: I mean, what you've described is, in essence, what Sri Lanka is dealing with. They're dealing with the repercussions of trying to have these developed nation policies Without the funding and ability to actually adhere to it, and in turn have cratered their economy, trying to adhere to these bullshit ESG standards that even we don't adhere to. Sorry, this this conversation is getting me a little a little riled up, and I'm ready ready to fight someone. Honestly, Um,
2: darkness embrace it.
0: Nick, is there a commodity gold? I mean, sorry, not gold, not oil, because everyone keeps saying oil, and like, yes, I get it. Oil is very important, but is there a commodity that you're paying extra close attention to uh, that maybe could be an another indicator beyond just Bitcoin to prelude some worse stuff happening, if you will?
1: Um, honestly, no. I think that the oil market is um, has. Too many of its own fundamentals uh and it can be a great macro indicator but it can be it can be noisy so oil is looking at the oil price is something i do for price study but it's not something that's part of my core framework to see where we're going and to be honest neither is gold and neither is copper and neither are neither is lumber i know a lot of people like to use lumber as well as a leading indicator Other people like to look at agriculture commodities to forecast emerging market turmoil, perhaps, or, you know, stage of the cycle. Not, none of that stuff is really part of my framework. You guys know me as a rates guy. I stick to that and I stick to price study in the rates market. And, um, you know, I dabble in areas of risk like, uh, you know, equities and other corporate spreads. Um, That's really as far as I'll go outside of my lane but um, you know my price study is rates based, and of course Bitcoin based, and I have uh, added the Ethereum Bitcoin cross to my framework, uh, my price study framework, in terms of a risk indicator and a cyclical indicator.
0: The correct answer was wheat, but <laughs> nice try. I was waiting for it. I was. <laughs> now has a uh, a deep. Hey, um, I
1: gave you the shout on the agricultural and the emerging market for the wheat, you know, uh, sort of experts uh, and 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 watchers out there. But it's just not it's not part
2: of my framework. No, that, like and- in um, in Batman when he has that sort of really transformational moment where all the bats scream out of the cave and cover him, and he like masters his fear. I feel like Q had that, but it was with wheat inexplicably, just wheat blowing everywhere, trapped in a wheat field, being attacked by wheat. And then you mastered your fear, and you were like, wheat is the most important asset, no demand.
0: I mean, in all honesty, I really don't eat a lot of bread or wheat. Like, I am in that camp that doesn't consume that good, but I'm also not naive that hey, this is the main source of calorie. And we don't need to have this conversation know, with like with that. Nick. Um, Nick, <laughs> is there? so we've talked a lot about yield curves. We've talked a lot about bonds and what your expectations are is there a limit to what you think the Fed is going to be able to do with raising rates? Or will they, just, will they be able to raise rates in a way that will just crater the economy?
1: There is, a, there is a tipping point. At the beginning of the year, what I wanted to communicate most to my readers was that the Fed is going to start hiking rates and aggressively and a bunch and stocks will come down and the Fed will not care. I I was pounding the table on this thesis that, you know, um, the Fed will be raising rates. It will bring stocks down and they won't cave right away. Inflation's at 8%. They will not cave. It's not, that's not on the near term time horizon. Okay. Now the Fed has raised rates 175 basis points since I've started, since I started writing about that. So we've, and especially with the 75 basis point hike um, last week, two weeks ago, we have passed that midpoint. Okay. That's where we are. We've passed the point where it's just obvious the Fed is going to be hiking completely eyes closed, blind to everything else. Don't care about the stock market coming down or anything like that. Don't care about GDP being negative. Or GDP trending towards zero, do not care about any of that. Now, guess what? The Fed's eyes are open again. So that's where we are. Their eyes were closed because they had to—they had to um, basically not embarrass themselves, right? Not—not <laughs> not completely embarrass themselves. They just have to save face a little bit. They hiked 175. Now their eyes are open. They'll be watching markets now, okay? The next 20% decline in stocks, watch for the Fed speakers to start talking. Maybe not the next 5%, but that's where we are now. Where I'll be watching the Fed, who will be watching the markets. I'll be watching the markets to see what the Fed is going to do. So um, I'm also watching the, the yield market, and right now, yields are up. They're not, there's no sign of a crashing of two-year yields. That's when we'll know, and also re-steepening of the yield curve, that the Fed is actually thinking about cutting rates. So I wrote a piece a few weeks ago about the relationship between two-year yields and Fed funds. That was an important study to show that watch two-year yields coming down to tell us when the Fed is going to cave or when the Fed is going to change course, right now, two-year yields are still at three and a quarter, 150 basis points higher than Fed funds. So that's permission from the rates market for the Fed to keep hiking. We look like 75 basis points in July is, is on. Otherwise, you know, yields would be down. Front-end yields would be down. Um, you know, three month yields would be down, two-year yields would be down, but they're not. They're there's they're sticky where they are. So we're gonna look for another 75 basis points. Then rates are gonna be at 250 really quickly. 250 in you know, March in four months. 250 basis points in four months is a lot of tightening. Then you really have to almost expect that they're near the end. Plus, they've said that 3.4 is their year-end target. So you're already – see, we're still 170 basis points away from 3.4. But then we'll only be 100 basis points away from 3.4. Then you'll have to start watching the end. So the next hike, 50 or 75 basis points, it's going to put us really in that zone of, okay, they're going to stop soon. How soon really depends on how the market behaves. But yeah, I don't think we're getting to 3.4 to 3.8 in Fed funds. Um, but I also think that we're probably going to see the next 75 basis points easily in July.
0: It's uh, a very scary time to say the least. Not in not in my lifetime. P lived through the Great Depression, so he has seen things far worse than, than what we are bearing witness to. It's true. I am a Highlander. Uh, Nick, I, I want to respect your your hard stop um, and give you sort of the last opportunity. Actually, there is one question. We always take one question from the audience. You know what the question already is. P, I will let you ask the final question.
2: Wait, I, I don't know which which one. You no, know, oh
0: my god, you hype this up in the chat, and I'm going to take it from you because you've just you you lost the plot, Nick. Why is Joe the best employee you have ever had?
1: Oh my God! Well,
2: it's there was. This is the top comment. Q asked, like, "Hey, we're talking with Nick tomorrow."
1: It is a fantastic question. Um, The asterisk is that it's both Joe and Matt, and they're the same person. Got it. They're not the same person. They both bring um, a tremendous amount of energy and ownership to this process. Joe is, um, you know, a whiz with the charts and you know, he's a numbers guy and he's a Bitcoin guy, but he wants to learn about rates, um, through this process. And so I'm really enjoying working with Joe and, um, Matt just like has, has all the, the swish and, and, and he's making us look so good, um, with the visuals. And, uh, I'm just, I'm really thrilled guys to, to be a team of three, um, coming from a team of one. Um, really the sky's the limit for us and we're very excited to deliver four days of content. Now, regularly a Substack post on Wednesday and Friday, every week, a YouTube video that's educational on Tuesday and Thursday, every week. And, um, we're going to, th- there's just going to be a lot of content coming out frameworks, um, explaining, trying to explain the whole macro framework in a very, approachable and easy to understand way um, and yeah I'm just I'm just really amped for all of it.
0: I as well am amped to, to be watching. I know you guys just put out I believe the first video for a quick tutorial on what is the lightning network um, there's a Bitcoin layer YouTube channel. There's a Bitcoin layer Substack. There's a Bitcoin layer Twitter handle and if you're not following the time value of BTC uh, Joe or Matt, you should be following the the whole team, Nick. I'll let you have the final word, and please feel free to, to discuss or share anything else you guys are working on.
1: Yeah, the BitcoinLayer.com. You can find all of us, all the links. Uh, we hope you guys will subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, tell us what what educational videos you're interested in. So I'll just you know tease a couple of the the first ones that we have planned. We got the Lightning Network one. Uh, the next one is going to be a, a yield curve explainer. So a little bit similar to what we discussed today in terms of the yield curve. We're going to have our valuation framework for Bitcoin. How are we thinking about Bitcoin in relation to technical analysis, on-chain analysis, and energy input costs? Uh, we're going to have a duration explainer. What is duration and interest rate risk? And why do prices and yields move inversely from each other in the bond market? We're going to talk about repo. Um we're going to have basic uh, Bitcoin supply explainer videos. You know, people that just don't understand, well, what happens in 2040 what, when the miners aren't earning income anymore and they don't understand transaction fees or they don't understand the halvings. Basic stuff on the YouTube channel to explain for Bitcoin and macro and then in-depth research and timely analysis on the Substack. stack. Uh, I just really hope everyone will join us uh, for the ride.
2: Thank you so much, Nick. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you for giving us your time, Nick. Be sure to subscribe to everything they're putting out. And if you didn't read Layered Money, don't admit that to me. Go read it this weekend. Adios.